Bible, stand with me and grab your Bible. I hope you have one. You can turn in it to the book of Isaiah. Uh, chapter 42 is where we will be together this morning. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, I would invite you to use one of the chairback Bibles. It should be there in front of you, nearby you. You'll find this morning's text on page 602. And what we want to look at uh, together this morning is the first nine verses of Isaiah 42. So let me uh, read those for us, and then I'll pray once again for our study of God's Word, and then we'll begin together. So uh, listen as the Lord again speaks to you uh, through His perfect Word. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols, behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we thank you for... This text that tells us there's good news to be found in a suffering servant. So we ask that you would speak now, for we, your servants, are listening. And we do pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, you may be seated. It was in October of 1863 that the Secretary of War at the time, a man named Edwin Stanton, Uh, was traveling to Indianapolis because he was going to hold a conference with General Ulysses S. Grant. And when he got to this train station, he noticed that Grant's party was already there, and so began to walk down the train station and promptly pass by General Grant and grab the hand of one of Grant's aides, shaking it vigorously, saying, I'm so glad to meet you, General Grant, because they never met before. I knew exactly what you looked like from the newspaper pictures. And the point was, at that time, as you can probably imagine in the 19th century, it was quite possible that you could hear of a famous person, General Grant, and have no clue what he looks like. And so you could pass right by him in a case of mistaken identity. And the reason I tell you that is because what we come to in Isaiah this morning is a text that tells us about the identity of the Savior to come, the identity of the Messiah who is on the way. And we're going to see along the way this morning that it's an identity that many people miss because it doesn't look like what many people would think it would look like, an identity belonging to the Savior and the Messiah. 
In fact, even in the world of biblical scholarship, it's an identity that many scholars miss. Because when you come to Isaiah 42, you're coming to the first of four servant songs, as they're known in Isaiah. And there's all kinds of speculation that belongs to, well, who is the servant in the song of Isaiah? Particularly here in chapter 42. Already there's been a number of texts in Isaiah to this point that have spoken about a servant. So by this point, it's quite clear, other texts speak about Isaiah as a servant, Israel as a servant, Eliakim as a servant, a man named Cyrus, another one named David as servants of God. So people wonder, when you get to Isaiah 42, well, who's the servant of which this text speaks? Now, you don't need to turn there. I'll turn there and just read a passage for us, because I want to say right here from the outset this morning that we are right, because it's what we're getting ready to do, to put the song on the lips of the Lord as he speaks about his son, Jesus Christ, that the suffering servant here in Isaiah 42 is the Lord Jesus himself. So Matthew chapter 12, you don't need to turn there, but you could perhaps mark it down. The gospel tells us that many were following Jesus, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen. And he just begins to quote Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. So when we come to Isaiah 42, we're coming to a passage that is a prophecy. It is a portrait about the coming Messiah, about the light that is on the way. So there's two reasons why I want to turn your attention this morning to Isaiah 42 on this special Christmas Lord's Day. The first of which is, it is a text that no doubt tells us the identity of the coming Savior. That light was on the way, and that we now, of course, on the other side of the work of Jesus Christ, we get to rejoice not only in light is coming, but light has come. And perhaps more particular to our church is we've spent the majority of this year uh, walking through the Acts of the Apostles, and haven't we heard over and over that these apostles were commissioned to preach Jesus Christ as a light for the nations. And that phrase, a light for the nations, it's packed in with all of this significance, partly from a passage like our own that speaks about a coming Messiah who would be a light for the world. So I want to connect in some ways this theme that belonged to Acts over the many months of our study uh, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our simple theme along the way this morning is the light has come and a servant for the burdened. And you might want to think more about that latter portion. A servant for the burdened. Because what we need to see along the way in this passage, in its nine verses, in all of its fullness, and all of its simplicity, is it tells us much not only about who the Messiah would be, also what the Messiah would do, and even further, how he would do it. It's got this expansive scope attached to it about everything that we need to know about Jesus' person, Jesus' name, Jesus' mission, Jesus' identity along the way. And principle to this servant song is he is a servant for the burdened. So you could be in here, couldn't you, at the end of 2022, burned out, broken down, beaten down in your soul. And I want to tell you what the Lord Jesus Christ does with burned out and broken down and burdened people. I want you to see his mercy that is a special sovereign mercy that belongs 
to this Savior. So before you get to verse 1 of chapter 42, uh, we need to know something, don't we, a little bit, quite quickly, about the overall book of Isaiah. It's a beautiful book. It can be a bewildering book for many Christians, partly because it's so long. It's 66 chapters long. Now, kids, think with me for a second. How many books are in the Bible? 66. And how many books are in the Old Testament? 39. How many are in the New Testament? Well, 27. And when you begin to work this out, you realize why we have often referred to in biblical studies as Isaiah as a mini-Bible. It's 66 chapters long. It divides nicely, clearly into two parts. first part is 39 chapters that we might call a book of conviction. The second part is a book of 27 chapters that we could call a book of comfort. And where we come in our gospel according to Isaiah this morning is simply this announcement of a servant who is on the way. Now, I want you to flip back to chapter 40. And I want you to see something significant because it's going to give us the appropriate context for our passage along the way this morning. The book of comfort begins in chapter 40 of Isaiah. And famously, it has this, this wonderful meditation and declaration of the greatness of God. And just notice verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 40. It says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. So simply, the book of comfort says, The Lord is coming. He's not going to grow weary. He's not going to be faint. He can ride along for the joy of his people. And then in chapter 42, what does it say? Behold, my servant is coming. So how is it that the Lord is going to come and bring comfort to his people? Well, it's going to be in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. So in chapter 42, we get these nine verses that we famously call the first servant song. They have two simple stanzas. I think it's Probably unlikely that ancient Israelites would have sung this passage. It's probably better understood as a prophetic poem. And it does have two simple parts. Verses uh, 1 through 4 finds the Lord talking to his servant. And then verses 5 through 9 finds the Lord talking of his servant. So we want to see, first of all, God's presentation of the servant before we notice his confirmation to the servant. So the presentation begins, the first word, verse 1 of chapter 42 Behold. Isaiah loves the word behold. That's why it's a good gospel book. 88 times it shows up in this book. Behold. This sudden summons to see something. Uh, We spend many, it feels like hours uh, throughout the week, driving around in our big van with all of the kids in it. And you would probably not be surprised to hear me tell you that Countless times, it feels like, throughout the week, someone is shouting about something they've seen out the window. I mean, just last Sunday morning, we were driving into church, and twice, Boston, our youngest, shouted, Look! A hot air balloon! And everyone began to look at the hot air balloon, and five minutes passed by, and he says, Look! Another hot air balloon! And in the Gospel of Isaiah, he's always saying, Look! See! Behold! But here it's a contrast is what he's making. Because he actually used the word behold five times in chapter 41. I want to show you the last two. Just glance up in your Bible to chapter 41, verse 24. He says, behold, you are nothing. Skip down to verse 29. He says, behold, they are all a delusion. What is he saying? Idolatry is worthless and useless. Behold, the vanity of idols. Uh, Behold, the emptiness of idolaters. And what does he say by way of contrast? Verse 1, Behold my servant. 
Behold how meaningless they are. And I want you to behold all the meaning that belongs to my servant who is on the way. And I want you to see, first of all, related to what the Lord says about his servant is the father's pleasure. You see, verse 1 continues, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. It's appropriate, isn't it, for us to think about Jesus Christ as the chosen one of God, that he is the elect one of God. It gives sense, doesn't it, even in light of this very verse. Why you hear things in the Gospels like the Father breaking through the heavens to declare his pleasure in his Son. You can think, can't you, about Jesus being baptized. The Father splits the heavens and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then even at the Mount of Transfiguration, with the inner circle of the disciples there, he says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And what you need to know is every first century Jew that knew their Old Testament well, and they did, these disciples listening to that split sky sermon from heaven, what would they have heard? Not just that the Father loves the Son, but the Son is the suffering servant of whom Isaiah prophesied so long ago. A son in whom the Lord delights. And he not only speaks about his pleasure, but I want you to notice the Spirit's power. He goes on to say, This is the one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And so when you combine that with what he's just said about upholding the son, that word uphold, it means something like to grasp firmly or to grasp fastly. You know, it kind of paints the picture of what maybe you have done with kids when you've been hiking in years past. Some of you who are parents, I mean, we, we tend to spend, my family, uh, at least some portion of our vacation every summer uh, up in Colorado. And so we've been hiking around mountainous areas with our children throughout the years and going to precipices that maybe aren't so safe and comfortable with the little kids. And we have kids that are daredevils. And so invariably, when you get to the precipice of the cliff, what do you do as a parent? Well, you hold them fast, don't you? You grab the hand lest they fall. And what God is telling us here is that he's going to uphold his son by his spirit. So think about all the ways that the father upheld the son by his spirit. Why is it when King Herod decrees that he's going to slaughter all the babies because he's heard that a king of the Jews has been born in his region, that the baby Jesus slips away quietly to safety in Egypt? The Spirit was upholding him. Why is it when Jesus shows up in his hometown in the synagogue and he pulls forth this scroll from Isaiah and reads from Isaiah 61 and says, Today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And they get angry. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's kid? They take him out to the cliff ready to murder him. And what does Jesus do? He just calmly and coolly walks through the crowd safe from all the harm. Why? The Spirit was upholding him. Why is it when he gets into the wilderness that he can be faithful where Israel fell short in the wilderness in the face of the devil's temptation? The Spirit was upholding him. I trust that, you know, if the sinless Son of God in his earthly ministry needed the Spirit's power to be held fast, how much more do, do you need the Spirit's power to uphold you in the midst of your trials and your troubles? Well, the text goes on now to speak about not just, of course, the Father's pleasure and the Spirit's power, but I want you to see the Son's purpose. Why is He coming? Better said, what is He getting ready to do? Well, you'll notice this word shows up three times, this word of justice. Look at the end of verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Look at the end of verse 3. 
He will faithfully bring forth justice. You see the middle of verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. He comes to bring justice to every corner of God's creation. North to south, from east to west, he comes to bring justice. So kids, I want you to think carefully about what justice is. Because I would imagine that many of you understand justice to be uh, something more related to penalty for crimes committed. At least that's the way we often uh, think about it in our culture. But the biblical idea of justice is, is much more expansive than just the mere penalty that crimes deserve. Uh, you might think about it this way by a sense of an analogy. Uh, let's say that you have, as many of you I'm sure do, you have a family heirloom at home, quite precious to you. Maybe it's been yours in your family for decades and decades. And say you come home one day and figure out that someone has stolen your family heirloom. And you call the police and say, hey, we need help in tracking down this family heirloom. And weeks go by and, and suddenly you get a call from the department. They say, good news. We found the person who stole the family heirloom. Justice has been done. And you would probably think, well, that's great. But where's the family heirloom? And the police department responds, well, we haven't found that yet, but good news, justice has been done. We found the person that stole the family heirloom. And you would say, well, a justice would include, wouldn't it? Restoration of what was lost. And that's exactly what the suffering servant is going to come to do, the text is telling us. Establish justice upon the earth, which isn't merely something that only the law can do. The law can only go so far to punish and to reveal sin. The law can't actually restore that which was lost. But the righteous judge, the lawgiver, Jesus Christ, who is the suffering servant, he, he can come, and he has come, to bring justice to the ends of the earth. That's his purpose. Now I want you to see his plan. How is he going to do that? And it's here, in this point of Isaiah 42, the son's plan, that you begin to see, perhaps, why many people miss the true identity of the true king. Let's look again at verse 2, 3, and 4. It says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Again, verse 4, He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice. So he's going to do it quite different, isn't he? than at least how many people in the world would expect. You have a Savior coming to restore all things to where they were supposed to be. And he's not going to cry aloud in the voids. He's not going to shout in the streets. You're not going to notice him. I trust that you know the, the world doesn't need a, a browbeating, lecturing Savior. The world needs a Savior who knows meekness, tenderness, and humility. I think I told a number of you a few weeks ago that our, one of our boys has been listening to the Chronicles of Narnia before he goes to bed at night. And there's this you know, poem that belongs to the first book where this white witch has decreed that it's always winter but never Christmas. And so it's basically a world under judgment. And there's a point at which you begin to hear that Aslan, this great Lion King, that he, he is on the move. And as Lewis records it, he begins to record this poem that speaks about his teeth being bared. At the roar of Aslan, everything is going to be made right again. 
Uh, but a pastor friend of mine says a simple tabby cat has sharper teeth than the lion of Judah, according to this passage. He's coming to establish justice, not to burying his teeth and roaring from the streets. What's he going to do? Humbly, tenderly, mercifully, die on a cursed cross at the Mount of Calvary. There he's going to take that which you deserved and take it into his very heart. So guess what? He doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't quench flickering flames. And I want you to know that for many of you in the room today, that is the best news you could ever hear. Any week, you might sit in here today bruised, bending, wondering if you're just going to collapse and fall apart. And you wonder, what does the Lord think of me and my weakness? But what does he think of you in your weakness? Let me make you whole. Not with a frown and a stern countenance. What's wrong with you? Let me make you right. Lord, I'm flickering in my faith. I don't know if I can hang on. It's not as though he comes and just flicks it away. Well, it's not worth it. No, he says, I'll bring that back into flame. I will fan it into a fire that burns with the heat of my glory. We'll come back to that in a minute. But surely it's noticeable for us to see God's presentation of his servant. The Father's pleasure belongs to him. The Son's, the Spirit's power belongs to him. He's going to establish justice. That's his purpose. And he's going to do it in a way that the world will find foolish. The weakness, the tenderness of a cursed death at Calvary. Now I want you to see the second half. God's confirmation to his servant. Because notice the Lord speaks in verse 5. Thus says, God, the Lord, who created the heavens, who stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So the Lord now is not just speaking of his servant, about his servant. He's going to now speak to his servant. And it's a sermon of sorts that begins with the Lord's character. You'll see again, he simply says, verse 6, I am the Lord, who is the one calling the Son to the work of restoration and recreation, but he who created the world from nothing. Notice also, of course, his calling. He goes on to say, I have called you in righteousness. Of course, that means the calling of Jesus Christ to be the Savior for sinners. It's a right thing. It's an appropriate thing. He came at the right time, in the right place, for the right ends. Maybe that's why someone like the Apostle Paul can say it was in the fullness of time that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Not only does he speak of, of course, his character and, and calling and confirming his word to the servant. You'll see as verse 6 continues, he says, he speaks of his care. I will take you by the hand and keep you. No doubt many of you parents know that the keeping power of, of a hand to uphold a child who is stumbling, to save a child from danger. In a way that we, we need to find encouragement today, how is it that Jesus was faithful all the way through, but God's keeping power upon his life, God's, God's care through the Spirit. And significantly, I want you to see, fourthly, he speaks about his covenant. Verse 6 ends saying, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Now, a number of you have no doubt, been in Presbyterian churches for a long time. Therefore, a number of you no doubt know that we in Presbyterian churches make a big deal about what we call covenant theology. 
about how God relates by grace to sinners like you and me through his covenants. But it's not enough for us to know that Jesus Christ fulfills, guarantees, and even consummates all of God's covenant promises. Uh, The reason Isaiah 42 says that all is true is because Jesus Christ himself is the covenant. Why is all of God's covenant grace guaranteed in Jesus Christ? Well, he himself is the covenant. That's a covenant mission. You'll notice the end of verse 7 into verse 8 that again speaks about light in the darkness. You're going to be a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So this is a suffering servant, a servant for the burden on the way. Our our kids do love Lord of the Rings, and it's something that I suppose Emily and I have ensured that they love by requiring them to listen and read the stories along the way. And Because Lord of the Rings has occupied so much of my life, there are all these scenes that just kind of summon themselves into my mind at random points along the way. And, and one that I think about in light of this text it actually comes at the very end of that final book, The Return of the King. It's a scene that some of you might recall. It's where Sam and Frodo, these two little hobbits, have finally cast the ring of power into Mount Doom and uh, they're kind of situated on this rock as, you know, lava's crashing all around them, and they, they black out. And as the story goes, they, they wake up in the land of Ithilien, and uh, the scene has Sam there waking up to this, this great wizard Gandalf seated at the foot of his bed, a wizard that Sam had thought was dead. And Sam asks him one of these questions that just, I think, sticks to the human heart in such a simple way because we know the world around us needs restoration, just like that world of Middle-earth did. And so he says, Gandalf, are all the sad things going to become untrue? And of course, we have a servant song here today that says, yes, all the sad things are going to become untrue because light has come in Jesus Christ, the servant for the burden. So what does it mean to respond to this servant? Well, as you see, is three things here at the end. Three things from the final three verses. Number one, or to hear this song and, and be faithful in welcoming. Again, verse 7 says, He comes to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, that's the profound nature, isn't it, of, of the, the bad news, the terrifying news of even what it is to be apart from Jesus Christ. It's to be in the darkness. It's to be in the dungeon of sin. A text is telling us that you can sit in here today, of course, and you can look, can't you, with your physical eyes. You can look out the window and see sunshine. You can see the light, but with the spiritual eyes of which the Bible speaks, they're blind to the light that is Jesus Christ. They're blind to the life that is found in his name. Therefore, you might sit in here today utterly in the darkness of sin's dungeon. But Isaiah says, light is coming. The Gospels say, light is coming has come. The Bible declares to you a son of light. His name is Jesus. Might you welcome him today into your very heart? Not only does it mean that we're to welcome him into our very hearts, this this should, this servant song, should show us something about the welcoming quality that belongs to our life as Christians. For I ask you this, are, are you good at mending bruised reeds? Or do you have skillet just snapping them? 
in impatience? Are you, are you good at fanning into flame, flames that are flickering? Or are you much better at snuffing them out? There's something about the gentleness of Jesus Christ that we need to relearn, shouldn't we? He himself says in the Gospel of Matthew, Come to me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. What does God require of his servants in 2 Timothy chapter 2? But they would be gentle, kind to everyone. Be faithful in the welcoming. Be faithful, notice, in the warning. Verse 8, the Lord says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So therefore, anyone that is living for self, anyone that is living for idols, anyone that is living for anything other than the Lord himself, there's a warning that belongs to that danger, isn't it? God will not allow his glory to be stolen. God will not allow his glory to be robbed. There's a warning that belongs to this song, along with the welcoming. And finally, there's waiting, isn't there? There's waiting. You see the end of verse 4. It talks about the coastlands, waiting for God's law. And then verse 9, get the bookend of the behold, don't you? You see verse 9 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So the people in Isaiah's day, they're waiting for light to come, aren't they? Light that's going to extend God's justice to the ends of the earth. Well, they were waiting for something like 700 years, depending on when you date this prophecy. And then Jesus came. And what are we doing? Now, for some 2,000 years later, we're still waiting, aren't we? For light to fully and finally come. But the good news of the gospel is that he's already telling us, isn't he? What's going to happen when the king arrives that final time? That justice is going to go to the ends of the earth. That burdened and beaten down souls will be restored through a gentle, a merciful judge whose name is Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your abounding faithfulness and mercy that has come to us in Jesus Christ. We rejoice that he has summoned us to come to him. We who are weary and heavy laden, that we might find rest in him. So help us by your word and through your spirit to find the rest that only Jesus can provide. May we find strength. May we find sustenance even in his ministry to us this day. And we do pray it all in his precious name. Amen.